you'll please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs 21. Within the heart of man is the insatiable presumption that whatever he does in his own eyes is right. Do you remember the distressing days of the judges, the judges of Israel? Judges 21-25 says in those famous words, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The concept of seeing, quote-unquote, in the Bible, doesn't simply mean our receiving and using the gift of physical sight. God the Father, of course, who has no physical body and therefore does not use eyes as we do, nevertheless sees what we're doing on earth. That is, the Lord perceives our human actions. The sense of sight is more than simply a material or a physical reality. There is a spiritual seeing which God uses to judge us as we are His creatures. Speaking about the book of Judges in the first part of that book, in chapter 2, verse 11, the Bible says this, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. You see, the concept of the sight of the Lord is His vision. His vision of what we are doing and how we are perceiving and pursuing this life. And mankind presumptuously and perpetually assumes that we can know that which is in our own eyes, how to pursue and how to perceive things in this life in our own way, which is really nothing but pride and arrogance, that we are bound and determined to do things which are right in our own eyes, even when it conflicts with God's vision of things. That is what mankind is insatiably presuming about his life. And for our time tonight, I want to show you from Proverbs chapter 21, three categories of Proverbs, three categories of Proverbs from this chapter which can teach us God's vision of life and how we are to rightly pursue it. Three categories of God's vision of life and how we are to rightly pursue it. God will give us in this chapter all that we would need to know with the right kind of lens in pursuing Him, the right kinds of pursuits. And the first one is this. God's vision leads us the right way. God's vision leads us the right way. Now, instead of the last couple of chapters that we have covered in one evening, while going through it sequentially, I want to skip around tonight because I believe it can be grouped in such a way that will show these three categories. So get your pens ready because I'm going to move all around 
this particular chapter looking at verses in groupings or categories. And the first is this, God's vision leads us the right way. This truth of what is right in God's eyes and not our own, I think could serve as the perfect backdrop from Proverbs 21. I've mentioned to you before that within the book of Proverbs, and we've noticed it elsewhere, like in our references to the book of Judges, just referenced, the use of our eyes and the use of our ears are powerful metaphors for spiritual sight and hearing. That's a major biblical teaching tool. And I want to show you that even from the book of Proverbs, chapter 21 tonight. For instance, notice verse 2 of Proverbs 21. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the motives. And now you can see, no pun intended, where I got the title for the message tonight. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. Mankind's perception, his own way, always seems to be the right way. And while we think we know the right way to go, Solomon says, it is only the Lord Himself who weighs our innermost motives. Only He can look into the very nature of our souls and determine what are our true motives. We have to learn in this life how to defer to the all-knowing, the all-wise, the all-seeing God of the Bible rather than seeing things only in our own way. That's a marvelous backdrop to this whole chapter. In fact, verse 1 gives us an excellent example of our trust in this all-seeing, providential God of the Bible and what He sees that needs to be done. Notice verse 1. There Solomon says, "...the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes." The fact is... We don't often see what our own government is doing, what the king is doing, what the president is doing, what our governmental leaders are doing, what politicians are doing, what social service personnel are doing. But God knows because, as this proverb says, He channels them like water is channeled. He's providentially in control. We might assume that our government is doing something that can't be controlled or can't be monitored or can't be looked after, but no, God and His ultimate ends are going to show us through His channeling of the King's own heart. If a man's way is right in his own eyes, we would be tempted to be very, very fearful. Yet God's sovereignty rules over all things, including the heart of the King. Indeed, look at the last verse of this chapter. It gives us the same truth but from a different angle. It's a wonderful inclusio, chapter uh, 21, verse 1, and chapter 21 at the end, verse 31, really groups all of these together. Notice what it says. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Same idea. A king can prepare himself for war. He can prepare his troops. He can have all of the horses ready But who controls the winning of such a war? It's the Lord. The Lord determines the victory. You can't assume just because you're prepared to fight 
that you're going to be victorious. The only person who knows the end of a war is the Lord Himself. He's the one who orchestrates the final outcome. A man may assume that he is right in his own eyes. He may believe that he's ready for battle. Even the battle readiness where you're counting the cost, where you're getting your horses in order, where you've got all of the armament that you think you need, but the victory belongs ultimately to the Lord Himself. He determines the outcome. Another verse in the middle of this chapter, interestingly enough, almost completely in the middle, verse 18, says this, the the wicked is a ransom for the righteous, and the treacherous is in the place of the upright. Now that is a difficult proverb. It sounds, however, a lot like verses 1 and 31 in one sense. It's really somewhat simple, at least in terms of its straightforwardness as it is translated. It's something like this. The wicked slash the treacherous are a ransom or stand in the place of the righteous or the upright. That's clear enough, but what does that really mean? What does it mean for the wicked to stand in the place of the upright or the wicked to be ransomed for the righteous? Well, couple of other passages that may help. Listen to Isaiah 43, verses 3 and 4. It might shed a little light on what this might mean. It says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Some of that same language. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Maybe not using the idea of ransom in a theological sense, but maybe being used here in a somewhat metaphorical sense. Maybe it's talking about God using wicked people to teach His people something they didn't otherwise know. Maybe even using them against His people to provoke His people, to provoke them to follow Him, to to follow after Him. The idea is sovereignty here. It's again under the same kind of banner. If you want to know the right way, don't follow your own way. Don't think that it's right in your own eyes. Follow the providence of God. Uh, The king's heart is in the the providence of God. If a person is preparing for battle, that's, that outcome is the victory known only to the Lord. And even God in His sovereignty will use wicked people in the place or for the challenge of His own people. You remember wicked Haman sacrificed on the gallows instead of Mordecai so that God's continuing plan of the Jews might come to fruition? might be the same idea. God sovereignly using the wicked in the place of the righteous. Look at verse 4 as well for another example of the use of this metaphor of the eyes. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. Now, we know no one's physical eye is in and of itself haughty. A physical heart isn't in and of itself proud. 
What Solomon is doing is using the physical dimension of a person's life to communicate spiritual realities. You remember I said to you last time that the metaphor of the lamp is referring to the soul of a person. It is a, it is a sinful person who is haughty and proud. And yet Solomon uses that metaphor of the eyes, of the heart, speaking of this idea that man cannot know the truth if he believes he is right in his own eyes. When his soul first conceives of sin, he uses his eyes, yes, to commit sin. But it's really not centering in on the eyes. It's centering in on the pride, on the arrogance, on the evil of his heart. Look at verse 24. Essentially the same truth about pride and arrogance. It says, proud Haughty scoffer are his names, who acts with insolent pride. See, that's synonymously saying that a a man's way is right in his own eyes. And an unredeemed man will have that pride and that haughtiness and that scoffering. scoffing. Those are his names. He acts with insolent pride. An unbeliever is filled with pride, which is to say a Insolence is a form of haughtiness, an arrogant pride. If you can stack pride upon pride, insolence is its name. You can call someone Fred or Tom or Bill, but his character, if he's haughty or proud, his name is really those things. It's precisely because he only sees life through his own eyes. And then another proverb, verse 11 mentions, by the way, this scoffing idea again. When the scoffer is punished, the naive becomes wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. Again, contrasting unbelievers with believers, non-Christians with Christians. Solomon says that when a scoffer is punished for his scoffing, his mocking, he won't listen But another person, even though he be naive or simple-minded, sees the punishment which is inflicted upon the scoffer, and even he learns a little bit. And the wise person who sees it all learns a great deal. In fact, it's a lot like Proverbs chapter 19, verse 25. Almost the same kind of language. Strike a scoffer, and the naive may become shrewd. But reprove one who has understanding, and he will gain knowledge. Every one of these Proverbs, under this category, about God's vision showing us the right way, are all intended to tell us the same thing. And it is this, that a man in his unbelieving condition assumes that his way is right. It's right in his own eyes. But God's vision, looking through God's lenses, are the only things that can show us the right way to live. Look at verses 25 and 26. The desire of the sluggard, we've seen the scoffer, the proud, the haughty, this is the sluggard. He puts, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving while the righteous gives and does not hold back. Another contrast. The scoffer scoffs and the sluggard slugs. Right? Just like a slug. 
Remember, his sluggardly life, that's what's right in his own eyes. He doesn't want to work. He desires or craves the things for which he is not willing to work. And yet the righteous works, presumably here, and works hard, so much so that he has enough for himself and enough for others around him because it says he gives and does not hold back. He has enough for himself because he's a hard worker and he has enough for others around him and he gives and he doesn't hold back. He's a very generous person, this righteous man. Why? Because he has a God-ordained vision of what life is like. Notice what else the righteous man does. Verse 12, the righteous one considers the house of the wicked turning the wicked to ruin. He learns this righteous man by considering the wicked and his way. This is clear from the word considers. He ponders, he thinks about the devastation which is brought upon the house of the wicked and he wants no part of it. He can see ruination, which is the end of the wicked man. He learns even by seeing the negative examples of life. He has God's vision. He can see what God sees, at least in part. Verse 20. There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. You see, a man who sees God's vision of things recognizes the booty or the fruit of the wise man's house. He sees it. There is precious treasure and oil in the wise man's house, his dwelling. But the foolish man, by contrast, swallows it up so quickly that he doesn't ultimately have anything to show for it. He's wise in his own eyes, and so therefore he gobbles it up as soon as he receives it. This was brought home to me recently when someone called inquiring about a car we had for sale. And he called up and he said, I'd like to come over and see this car, and I'd like to ask you how much you want for it. And so I told him how much he wanted for it, and he said, well, can I pay you now and pay you the rest when my next paycheck comes? And I thought, okay, now I've been studying the Proverbs. Is that a good decision to make? If you don't have all of the cash in hand, would that be a good decision? If you saw a portion of that money, would you ever see the other portion again? Likely not. The idea is the foolish man who spends everything he has at a moment's notice doesn't have the oil and the treasure in his home. He swallows it up and leaves himself with nothing. You see, this is what Solomon is doing with all of these Proverbs. He's warning his sons of impending danger, of thinking you are forever and always right in your own eyes. Look at another instance of this, verse 16. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. Wow. How graphic. For a man who presumes his own way is best. And notice this is referring actually to the word way, speaking of his path of life. He's inherently right in his own eyes. And yet this view is coming, of course, from his own sin-cursed perspective. And he'll ultimately, it says, rest in the assembly of the dead. That means he's going to be eternally judged. 
Don't for one moment think you can live according to your own eyes and at the same time avoid the consequences. It won't work. That's not the way life is. You've got to follow God's vision, His way of doing things. Notice another, verse 29. A wicked man displays a bold face, but as for the upright, he makes his way, there it is again, he makes his way sure. You see, a man who is right in his own eyes is a wicked man who displays, Solomon says, a bold face. Bold face, an impudent face. Uh, A face that is set, the jaw is set. It has the idea of someone who is set in their ways. He's locked into his position. He's got a settled position. He literally hardens his face. And he's a wicked man. But as for the upright, he makes his way sure. He doesn't do what's right in his own eyes. But he does what he does because he believes it's right from God's vision of things. It's the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. It's the difference between the sure way of the upright and the wandering way of the wicked man. Here's another example. Verse 8. The way, there it is again, the way of a guilty man is crooked, but as for the pure, his conduct is upright. If someone's conduct or way is crooked, then his character is wicked, he's laden with guilt, but for the righteous his conduct is upright, and therefore his path is pure. Combining those two proverbs, his path is sure, and his path is pure. Verse 21, he who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. That's the way of God's vision. It leads to the right way. What else will you find but life, righteousness, and honor? Who wouldn't want this? Who wouldn't want that kind of path? I'll tell you who wouldn't want that. The person who's committed to seeing life in his own eyes, from his own perspective. And if verse 21 speaks of the way of righteousness and life and honor, look at verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. You, You know that that is repeated many times throughout the Old Testament, right? The Lord desires obedience more than sacrifice. He desires a heart-rending obedience more than the rituals of religious ceremony. That's what he's saying. He doesn't just want the, the religious duty. He doesn't just want the externals. He wants the heart attitude. He wants, from his vision of things, for our hearts to be engaged, our attitudes to be pliable before Him. He doesn't just want us to crank out the Sunday attendance, the, the obligatory Bible reading, the perfunctory prayers. He wants our hearts. He doesn't just want the, the sacrifice, the, the external model. He wants the internal reality. Verse 27, similarly, 
The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent. You know, it catches us both ways. It's a person who comes maybe with an externalized religion or it's a person who is wicked who comes with actual evil intent to bring his sacrifice. Either way, God rejects it because it isn't his vision. It isn't what he sees as right or best. Indeed, look at verse 15. The exercise of justice. Here's the internal reality. The exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but is terror to the workers of iniquity. You see, the real heart-rending joy, the real inside stuff, is the exercise of justice and righteousness and equity. When you bring your sacrifice of obedience, you have joy because you know it's not something you're just cranking up on the outside. It's because you really have an internal motivation to serve Jesus Christ with all of your heart. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, there were those who said, But Lord, Lord... Did we not do this and did we not do the other thing? And the Lord says to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Almost that same phraseology, the workers of iniquity. There's a holy terror if you externalize your religion and say, Lord, Lord, we did all of these things in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many wonderful miracles or works in your name open to us and he says you workers of iniquity you who practice lawlessness to borrow Isaiah's phrase you worship me with your sacrifices your lips but your heart is what far from me verse 30 ultimately it comes down to this There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. You see, if a man really pondered the reality of these things, he would say, I presume these matters were right in my own eyes, and I presume I had the right kind of wisdom, the right kind of knowledge, the right kind of understanding But I've come to the realization by God's grace that there is no wisdom, there is no understanding, there is no counsel apart from the Lord. He controls the king, the king's heart. He controls the battle, everything in between. And there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Does that not remind you of 1 Corinthians 1.20? Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? How do we think in any sense that we could be right in our own eyes, pursuing our own way, our own path, and assume to have the kind of wisdom that will be acceptable to Him? God's vision, God's vision is the way that is right. Number two, God's vision gives us the right relationships. One, God's vision 
shows us the right way. Number two, God's vision gives us the right relationships. Not just the right way, but the right relationships. Verse 10 of Proverbs 21. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his, that is the wicked man's, eyes. You see, if a person is going to be right in his own eyes, it's not just going to affect him in terms of his own pursuit, of his own way, his own path, but it's also going to destroy all of his relationships. And you probably know some of those kinds of people where they've just destroyed all of the relationships around them. Just like verse 10 talks about. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. A wicked man craves evil. He's right in his own eyes and he just destroys everyone in his path. He's totally consumed with himself. Verses 6 and 7. The acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. The violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. See, the the righteous man, he acts with justice and for him there is joy. But for the wicked man, the violent man, the lying man, he just destroys all of the relationships around him. He acquires treasure, he says, by a lying tongue. But even that's a fleeting vapor. Even that's here today and gone tomorrow. I'll tell you, some of these negative examples from Solomon are powerful teaching tools. The lying tongue, you might get it for the moment. You might get that treasure You might get that booty for a while, but it's a fleeting vapor. It's going to leave you, it's going to go away, and then you're just going to want to pursue more lying and more deception so that you can get more cash, more material goods, whatever it may be. Look at verse 14. A gift in secret subdues anger, and a bribe bribe in the bosom strong wrath. Now, it could be true. Because this is not necessarily saying that it's a negative idea. It's just stating a fact. Just Solomon stating a fact. Sometimes a gift in secret will subdue anger. And sometimes a bribe given in the chest pocket of a person, slipping them money, is going to avert strong wrath. Yeah, that's true. It's a fact. But that's not the way life is supposed to be lived. That's not the way we're supposed to do things. Proverbs 15.1 says that we are to give a gentle answer and that will turn away what? Wrath. Proverbs 29.8 says, Scorners set a city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. That's the way to deal with anger. That's the way to deal with strong wrath, not bribing someone. But again, that's what happens when a person who thinks he's right in his own eyes deals with things manipulatively, and it doesn't work. It may be true sometimes, and sometimes it may even work in the short term, but it's not going to work in the long run. Verse 13, He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. A frightening proverb. Again, the destroyed relationships of a man who is right in his own eyes, 
who hears the cry of the poor and he turns a deaf ear. And in his time of need, he's going to cry out, as it were, to God and will be ignored. God's vision leads to right relationships. Man pursuing his own way through his own vision because of his own sense of the reality of life will cry out at some point and he won't be answered. Verse 9 and verse 19. Here are destroyed relationships. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Verse 19, it is better to live in a desert land than with a a contentious and vexing woman. You want to talk about destroyed relationships? Just live life in your own eyes, with your own perspective, apart from God, apart from His vision, apart from His vision on right relationships, on what a marriage ought to be, on right speech and right conduct, and what you have is a man even at that time where houses were flat, they didn't have the kinds of roofs that we have, and he wants to go into the corner on the upper part of the flat roof to be as far away from the contentious woman as he can possibly be. That's sad. That's incredibly sad. That's the destruction of relationships. And it's a woman who is contentious, who sees life from her own grid, from her own perspective, who pursues her husband or anybody else in the family with contention and disputes and quarrels to the degree that nobody even wants to be around them. Look at Proverbs chapter 19, verse 13. Similar. A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Chapter 27, verse 15, very similar. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. I looked out of my window today and saw that dripping rain, read that verse and said, my, oh, my. Chapter 25, verse 24. It is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. The destruction of right relationships comes when a woman sees life through her own eyes and not God's. Verse 23. Here's the answer. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. Isn't this the opposite of stirring up contentions? A man's way is right in his own eyes, and when he speaks about what he thinks is right, he gets his soul in trouble. But the man who sees life from God's point of view, he guards his mouth and he guards his tongue and he guards his soul from troubles. Wouldn't you like to be that man rather than the other? Wouldn't you like to be that woman rather than the other? And and speaking of the tongue and the mouth, notice verse 28. A false witness will perish. 
but the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. If you perpetually bear false witness and thereby disobey the ninth commandment, you'll perish. That's what he says. But if you listen carefully and express some discernment and some critical judgment and some clear thinking in what you hear, you'll be called upon by others to speak the truth perpetually. You'll be called upon, whether it's in a legal context like this is probably referring to, or in life itself. In general, you'll be looked upon as a counselor, as a help, as a guide. People will want you to speak. People will want to hear from you. Now, admittedly, some of your translations may have a bit of difficulty in translating this, and it may be even some, in some ways different. I looked at a couple of different ones because of the difficulty of the verse and its precise meaning. Here's the alternate translation in the margin of the NIV. A false witness will perish, but the words of an obedient man will live on. I like that. The ESV translates it this way. A false witness will perish, but the word of a man who hears will endure. It's that sense of the long-lasting nature of hearing the counsel of a man who speaks truth. It's going to endure. He's going to speak forever. The truth seeker and the truth speaker will live on and on and on. How much different is that from the contentious woman, from the person who doesn't guard his mouth and his tongue? It's because she sees, he sees life from God's vision. And God's vision always leads to right relationships. Third and finally, God's vision provides us the right guidance. God's vision provides us the right guidance. Not just the right way, the right path, not just the right relationships, but also the right guidance. For instance, verse 5. The plans of the diligent, that speaks of guidance, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. But everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. You remember in chapter 20, Verse 25, last Lord's Day, it is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy, and after the vows to make inquiry, it's a very similar idea. It means back up, take a moment, spend time thinking through the vow you're about to make, be diligent about your plans, be careful, think them through. And with both of these Proverbs, from both of these chapters, Solomon is telling his sons that they need to to be careful and deliberate in their planning. And if you have God's vision of things, that planning will surely be to you an advantage. But if you're hasty, if you're hasty in taking your vows, your religious commitments, or if you're hasty in any other way, Solomon says it comes surely to Poverty. Boy, that's a word that speaks of having God's perspective, putting His word in your heart so that when those decisions come, you're carefully planning, you're deliberate, you're discerning, so that it is for you an advantage. But a man who's right in his own eyes, 
He just goes headlong into his own decision-making because he thinks he's right. He's committed to his plan. He hasn't thought it through. He's hasty, and he makes these commitments, and surely it brings him to poverty. Verse 17 of this great chapter. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Speaking of self-indulgence, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You're seeing life only for the moment, grab the gusto, live for the moment, do what you can now, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's a person who's just thinking of the last party and how to have another one, just seeking his own pleasure and obviously implied he's not going to work, he's just seeking his own pleasure And therefore, he'll become a poor man. He loves wine and oil. He loves drinking and partying. And he won't become rich because he's only focused on the next show. He's not going to be able to support himself or his family. Folks, that's not the right kind of guidance. He's looking at life from the eyes of pleasure-seeking. And he's going to be destroyed. Now, contrast that with verse 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. Oh, this is good. Rather than poor planning, rather than a lack of diligence and a lack of discernment and a lack of strategizing, this guy who is wise thinks through all of the issues. He's not hasty. He's not looking at things just for the pleasure of it all. He's wise He's considering all of the issues and he conquers the unconquerable. He goes against a fortified city. And if you know anything about those ancient days, those cities were incredibly fortified. But this wise man, and I think here of someone like David and his mighty men in 2 Samuel 5, the stronghold of Jerusalem, and they did it. They took care of it because they were wise. They had victory under what appeared to be impossible odds. Why? Because they saw life from God's perspective. David was trusting God. He wasn't doing it from the vantage point of his own reckoning, his own eyes. This is, this is an, an amazing thing. I was thinking of this truth when I came across a book recently by Anthony Flew. How many of you know that name? Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew, some of you know, for over 50 years has been essentially, until recent days, the world's most notorious atheist. A very, very capable British philosopher. And he has had, over the years, debate after debate after debate, even with evangelicals like William Lane Craig, who teaches at Talbot Seminary in California, <coughs> and and Anthony Flew has been a noted atheist for years and years and years, writing many, many books that have been used as foundation stones among atheists to bolster their position. In other words, it is seeing life through your own eyes. He shocked the world in 2004 when he came to the place where he said, I now believe in a supreme being. And listen 
to what is described in this book. It's a wonderful book. It's, it's stated at the top, there is no, and then with the word no scratched out and the word a placed in, in place of it, there is a God. How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. This is what it said. Fascinating. Anthony Flew writes, if I can find it, Ever since the announcement of my conversion to deism, I've been asked on numerous occasions to provide an account of the factors that led me to change my mind. I have now been persuaded to present here what might be called my last will and testament. In brief, as the title says, I now believe there is a God! Exclamation point. This is how he argues now for the person of God. Now, he's a deist. He's not a Christian. But listen to what he says. Let us begin with a parable. Imagine that a satellite phone is washed ashore on a remote island inhabited by a tribe that has never had contact with modern civilization. The natives play with the numbers on the dial pad and hear different voices upon hitting certain sequences. They assume first that it's the device that makes these noises. Some of the cleverer natives, the scientists of the tribe assemble an exact replica and hit the numbers again. They hear the voices again. The conclusion seems obvious to them. This particular combination of crystals and metals and chemicals produces what seems like human voices, and this means that the voices are simply properties of the device. But the tribal sage summons the scientists for a discussion. He has long thought long and hard on the matter and has reached the following conclusion. The voices coming through the instrument must be coming from people like themselves, people who are living and conscious, although speaking in another language. Instead of assuming that the voices are simply properties of the handset, they should investigate the possibility that through some mysterious communication network, they are, quote, in touch, unquote, with other humans. Perhaps further study along these lines could lead to a greater understanding of the world beyond their island. But the scientists simply laugh at the sage and say, Look, when we damage the instrument, the voices stop coming. So they're obviously nothing more than sounds produced by a unique combination of lithium and printed circuit boards and light-emitting diodes. Anthony Flew says, in this parable, we see how easy it is to let preconceived theories shape the way we view evidence instead of letting the evidence shape our theories. And in this, it seems to me, lies the peculiar danger, the endemic evil of dogmatic atheism. Now, that's what he was for 50 years. Take such utterances as... We should not ask for an explanation of how it is that the world exists. It is here, and that's all. Or, since we cannot accept a transcendent source of life, we choose to believe the impossible. 
that life arose spontaneously by chance from matter, or the laws of physics are lawless laws that arise from the void. End of discussion. They look at first sight like rational arguments that have a special authority because they have a no-nonsense air about them. Of course, he says, there is no more sign that they are either rational or arguments. Now, this man debated all of those same arguments for 50 years. What brings about such change? This is what he says at the end of the book on page 155. Now, all this, all that he's written in the book, might sound abstract and impersonal. How it might be asked, how it might be asked, do I as a person respond to the discovery of an ultimate reality, reality with a capital R, that is an omnipresent and omniscient spirit, capital S? I must say again that the journey to my discovery of the divine has thus far been a pilgrimage of reason. I have followed the argument where it has led me, and it has led me to accept the existence of a self-existent, immutable, immaterial, omnipotent, and omniscient being. And then he says this as he concludes, Where do I go from here? In the first place, I am entirely opening, open to learning more about the divine reality, especially in the light of what we know about the history of nature. Second, the question of whether the divine has revealed itself in human history remains a valid topic of discussion. You cannot limit the possibilities of omnipotence except to produce the logically impossible. Everything else is open to omnipotence. And then he says this, I want to return now to the parable with which I began this part. We talked of the satellite phone discovered by the island tribe and the attempts to explain its nature. The parable ended with the tribal sage being ridiculed and ignored by the scientists. But let's imagine it ending differently. The scientists adopt as a working hypothesis the sage's suggestion that the phone is a medium of contact with other humans. After further study, they confirm the conclusion that the phone is connected to a network that transmits the voices of real people. They now accept the theory that intelligent beings exist out there. Quote unquote. Some of the more intrepid scientists go even farther. They work to decipher the sounds they hear on the phone. They recognize patterns and rhythms that enable them to understand what is being said. Their whole world changes. They know they are not alone. And at a certain point, they make contact. He says the analogy is easy to apply. The discovery of phenomena like the laws of nature, the communications network of the parable, has led scientists, philosophers, and others to accept the existence of an infinitely intelligent mind, capital M. Some claim to have made contact with this mind. I have not, dash, yet. But who knows what could happen next? Someday, as he ends his book, I might hear a voice that says, 
Can you hear me now? Perhaps God will be gracious to Anthony Flew before Flew dies. And perhaps God will show him the reality that God does indeed exist in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came to this earth in order to die for sinners like Flew and like you and like me. And we see Christ through the lens of Holy Scripture by the eyes of faith. Let's pray together. Father, how could it be that we would be so foolish and so stupid to presume that we can know what we need to know about this world and about ourselves by presuming that we can know it through our own eyes. That is utter foolishness. We cannot know it. And these Proverbs are telling us over and over and over again that we are fools if we assume we can live life through our own eyes. We cannot. We must not. Every man's way is not right in his own eyes. The Lord and only the Lord looks through our innermost being to see what lurks there. And Lord, you're the only one who can change a man from being an atheist for a half a century into being someone who believes that there is an intelligent being who has created this world and is in sovereign control of it. And you are the only one who can continue to open those eyes to the reality that Jesus Christ came crashing through human history in His incarnation, through His righteous life, in His sacrificial death, by virtue of His resurrection, and now through His ascension and His sitting at Your right hand, who will one day judge the living and the dead. Lord, save Anthony Flew. Open his eyes to the widest possible refraction and allow him to see this Jesus whom we love and who can save him through the eyes of faith. Lord, I pray for anyone here, anyone who is attempting to, 
to live life in their own way, through their own eyes. Open their eyes, Lord, to your vision so that we might see clearly your principles through this great chapter. And with the eyes of faith, we'll be able to affirm that we cannot know apart from your own life, ministry, and book of truth. We dare not deny you and disobey you by disregarding your way and your relationships and your guidance. May not anyone leave tonight without placing their trust and their confidence and their ultimate reality, their destiny, apart from you, Lord Jesus Christ. In no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus, deliver us from our own vision of things. We ask you to save us and deliver us from ourselves. In your name, amen.